John chapter number 6. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed Him, because they saw His miracles, which He did on them that were diseased. Jesus went up into a mountain, and there He sat with His disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus lifted up His eyes and saw a great company come unto Him, He saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this He said to prove Him, for He Himself knew what He would do. I'll tell you, that, that verse right there, if we would just emblazon that on our prayer life, it would change the way we look at prayer. Stop and think about that. If we emblazon that on our, our prayer life, and really on the way that we view life in general, this He said to prove Him, for He Himself knew what He would do. God knows what He's going to do. God knows what He's capable of doing in your life and in mine. You say, well, why does He let these things happen? So He can prove us. You see, God does that not for Him. He does it for us. Amen. That's how we ought to look at things. Verse 7 says, Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here, which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. Jesus took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, He saith, uh, said unto His disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word tonight abundantly. Speak to our hearts through it, Lord. You know where we're at and what we're dealing with in our lives. Lord, I'm sure there's many here uh, tonight that are hurting and suffering, and some, Lord, that may have something in their life that needs to be dealt with and gotten out of the way. Lord, some that need encouragement, and I'm sure some that need to be abased. But God, You know what the heart is. I'm thankful tonight, Lord, that I don't have to know what each and every person's heart is. I have trouble knowing my heart because of how desperately wicked and deceitful it is. Lord, I'm thankful that You know our heart, and You know our reins, and You know who we are and what we need. So, Lord, we submit ourselves tonight to You and ask you to speak to us that which would bring you the most glory. Father, we love you tonight, and we thank you for loving us on Calvary. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As I read this passage of Scripture, I just have uh, five words that I want to give to you tonight. Uh, some of you say, well, you already give us more than five. Amen. But I'm going to try to give you just a few words that I hope will encourage you. As I read this passage, a passage that most of us are very, very familiar with. We've probably been taught this uh, at the youngest ages of Sunday school. Now, there's some uh, stories that you learn as you spend more and more time in Sunday school, but most even basic preschool Sunday school curriculum is going to deal with the feeding of the 5,000. 
And so this is not an unusual story to us. It's not unfamiliar. But I believe that sometimes as we read the Word of God, we miss a lot of the applications that can be made. Now, I want us to notice first off in this passage, the legion of people that is spoken of. We're told in verse number 1 that Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee and a great multitude followed Him. Now, notice what it says here. Because they saw His miracles which He did on them that were desired. Now, I want to stop and ask you something. What was it that piqued their interest in the Savior? The Bible says the reason that they followed Him was because they saw these miracles. Now, you say, well, they were following the Savior simply because uh, He had done some great things. They thought that was impressive. They thought He was a great teacher, and they had a great interest in Him. I'd propose to you something a little bit different. Listen to what it says in Matthew fourteen fourteen. Now, this is Matthew's parallel account of this. The Bible says, "...and Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude..." and was moved with compassion toward them. Now listen to this next phrase. It says, and he healed their sick. You see, the reason that this multitude had followed him is because they were sick. They had a need in their life. It may have been them. It may have been their loved one. It may have been their neighbor. It may have been their friend. It may have been someone that went to the same synagogue as them. But somewhere along the line, they knew there was a need in their life that only Jesus could meet. They had a sickness that needed to be healed. Could I say to you tonight, and I hope that I paint this picture right as I preach, could I say we live in a sick world? Isn't that true? It's a sickness. You know, there's a lot of sicknesses in this world. And it's, it just seems like every single day there's someone going to the hospital, going to the doctor, and you go to this doctor, and this doctor sends you to that doctor, and that doctor says, well, I don't know why he sent you to me. You need to go to this doctor. And that doctor says, well, I don't have the right chart. Let me call two doctors before. And, uh, and then when they finally get everything together and they've charged you a fortune, they look at you and say, we don't know what's wrong with you, amen? And that seems to be the, the condition that we face. But there is a greater sickness than any bodily ailment that could be uh, polluting uh, the bloodstream of mankind. And that's what the Bible deals with and presents to us as the sin sickness. You see, these people were coming to Jesus because they had a problem that no one else could solve. They had a problem that was afflicting and persecuting their life. And they needed some relief from it. Can I tell you that try as as they may for the world to deny that they are sin sick. You can look around and see the sin sickness of this world. I was just reading uh, yesterday that Italy has passed a new law with, uh, by the way, with the backing of the Vatican, that child molestation no longer has to be reported. Does that not shock you now? It may not surprise you, but it ought to shock you. That ought to turn your stomach. You say, well, preacher, that's just one instance. No, all over the world, this kind of perversion and sickness is taking place. And I've said now for for a couple years, uh, well, I've said it before then, but you didn't hear it because I wasn't here before a couple, three years ago. But I've said for a while now that the main goal behind uh, trying to redefine marriage is not to give a new definition to marriage, but it's to obliterate any definition of marriage. You see, if they make any type of consensual love uh, to be uh, acceptable and sanctioned uh, by the state, then they can make any kind of non-consensual love to be sanctioned by the state. You know what I'm saying. They're trying to obliterate the definition of marriage and of love in this society so that we have no idea what God expects of the marriage relationship. And you mark my word, and I'll say it again, I've said it several times, we are not far to seeing pedophilia being legalized 
and being romanticized in this country. You say, preacher, I'll never, never believe it. Society has never gotten that bad. Well, ask the old Roman Empire. The old Roman Empire was absolutely eat up with pedophilia. It was every, it was a common way of life in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome. Don't think we can't get there again, friend. We're headed in that direction. We have a sin-sick world. You can look at it uh, in the sexual perversion of society. You can look at it in the religious perversion of society. Now uh, everybody just believes there's many ways to heaven. Now even, listen, even a child knows that, that you can't take roads going different directions directions and wind up at the same place. Isn't that right? I mean, even a child understands that. It doesn't take a lot of brains to recognize, uh, friend, that if, uh, if uh, Islam says that Jesus is just a prophet and not the Son of God, and if Christianity says that He is the very Son of God incarnate, it don't take a rocket surgeon, amen, to try to figure out that something's wrong there. That one's right and that one's wrong. And I could go on, I'm not going to give enough time to it because it grieves my spirit sometimes to examine this world and the shape that it's in. But I think it's evident that this world has a sickness, a sin sickness with it. But I see something else in this legion of people. I see that they were sick, but you know there was a hope about them. And I'm thankful, even though that you and I were sin sick, I'm thankful there was a hope called Calvary because we see in this passage that though they were sick, they were also seeking they were looking for hope and help and an answer. And can I say that uh, despite what many people like to uh, present to us today, that this world is not so gospel-hardened that you can't win people to Christ. I mean, I know that sometimes people like to say, well, preachers never been like this before. People, they know the language. They know what Christianity is. And I understand what they mean. We are saturated with a lot of foolishness. And, uh, and by the same token, there is also a lot of good, solid Bible preaching. But can I say that the answer is still the gospel of Jesus Christ? They're still looking for an answer, the world is. They still need the answer. And there's some, if you'll just look for them. You know, I found the, the very people that say, well, you just, can't, you just can't win people to the Lord by witnessing to them like that anymore. You know that they don't do no witnessing. <laughs> you know why that is? If they got out and looked for them, they'd find out that they're looking for them. If they got out and started witnessing to people, they'd be amazed how much time that the Lord would allow them uh, with people to give them the gospel and to reach them. So we see this legion here. It was sick, but it was seeking. And they come to Jesus. And there they are out in the middle of the wilderness. And they're listening to the teachings of our Lord and Savior. But then a problem arises. The Bible says, look in verse number 7. When Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, now here's the problem, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? They had been out in the wilderness all day, and they were too far away uh, to leave now and go and get something to eat. Uh, the disciples exhorted the Lord, or I guess you'd say exhort, it might have been nag would have been a better word for it, but they said, send the, these people away so that they can get some victuals, so that they can get some food, so that they do not faint. But what I'm interested in is the fact that our Lord looks at Philip. And you say, well, why Philip? Well, there's a lot of reasons it was Philip. And I won't take all the time to study the character of Philip, but Philip was known kind of as the soul winner in the group. And uh, I believe the Lord was trying to get Philip to understand that he didn't have what it took 
to meet these people's needs. And I tell you, the first step uh, to reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ is to recognize that you can't reach them on your own. It takes the work of the Holy Ghost. It takes the power of the Word of God. It takes God uh, working, God planting, God watering. We're fellow laborers with God in this business. But what happens? He looks at Philip and he says this to them. He says, whence... Shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, I'm interested. Listen to how it's said in Matthew's account. You say, well, which do you think is right, preacher? I think both of them's right. I believe one gives us something the other don't give us, and, and the other one gives us what that one don't give us. And listen to what else was said. Listen to how it's worded in Matthew. But Jesus said unto them, they need not depart. And he looks at Philip and he says, give ye them to eat. That's a pretty tall order, is it not? The Bible says that when Christ sat them all down, there was 5,000 men. And other gospel accounts says besides the women and children. There's no telling how many people could have been gathered on that hillside on that day. Estimates have been uh, upwards of 20,000 or 30,000 people. And you can imagine if you've got a man plus his wife, if uh, let's assume every one of them is married. I'm sure every one of them was not. But if every one of them was married, uh, that would immediately be 10,000. And then if every one of them has one child, uh, that's uh, 15,000. If they've got two children, that's 20,000. On and on you could go. It would multiply very quickly. No doubt there was some that were not in that shape, but there was probably many that had large families. And so when he looks at Philip and he says, Philip, go give them something to eat. The Bible says he knew what he would do. He's doing this to prove uh, to Philip uh, what Philip was capable of. But can you imagine the feeling that Philip must have had? You know, we live in a world that tells us that our problem is that we feel too inadequate. The the pop psychology of the day, and I, you know, it's... In, in the uh, public school system and in academia, the, the college level, uh, psychiatry always tells young people, your problem is you don't have enough self-esteem. And your problem is that uh, you, you feel too uh, inadequate, and that's why you're not functioning correctly. The problem with that is that it's just not biblical. You know, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that no man ever yet hated his own flesh. You know, the problem is not that we think too little of ourselves, it's that we think too big of ourselves. And before God could use Philip, He had to make Philip realize how small he was. Our inadequacies do not limit God. They enable God to do something that will give Him the glory. And so we see in this passage an instruction given. Give them to eat. I'm sure it was a daunting task to Philip. But do you know that we have a more daunting instruction upon us? You say, well, preacher, I didn't know I had any instruction upon Oh, sure, you do, and I do too. You know what it is? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What a daunting task. What, what a monumental notion. I mean, it's one thing to give a man a loaf of bread. It's another thing to give him the living bread. It's one thing uh, to physically feed 5, uh, 10, 15, 20,000. It's another thing to be faced with a world which at this moment has somewhere around 7 billion people in it. Every one of them born sinners in need of Calvary. What a daunting task. We see an instruction given, but we see an insufficiency spoken of. Look what happens. Verse number 7, Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. Now, I, I spent a little time studying what, P, or what Philip was trying to say in this verse, because there's a lot of ways you can take that verse, a lot of different connotations. 
And some people have believed that what Philip is saying here is he's saying, Lord, we only have 200 penny worth, and that's not very much, and how are we ever going to uh, provide for all these people? Because when we think of a penny worth, we think of uh, 200 pennies. We think of $2, some insignificant amount. But actually, you'll find when you read in the book of Revelation that it speaks of a man's wages, uh, the, the price of bread being that of a penny or of a man's wages. And a lot of people believe, and I, I tend to believe this way too, uh, through studying that and studying some other things, that the amount that Philip gives here is not an insignificant amount, it's a monumental amount. In other words, if a penny worth is a day's labor and wages, then what Philip is saying here is 200 days worth of wages. What Philip is saying is he's not saying we only have these 200 penny worth. He's looking at the Lord and saying, Lord, even if we had 200 penny worth, even if we had thousands and thousands of dollars, Lord, it wouldn't be enough to feed this crowd. That encourages me. And you say, well, how could that encourage you, Brother Tobit? This is why it encourages me. Because sometimes we get discouraged about serving God over our inadequacies. Now, you know that's true, and I know it's true. And sometimes we tend to think, well, if I only had more talent, if I only had more boldness, if I only had a better knowledge of the Word of God. If I only had this, if I only had that, if I only had this, if I only had that, then I could be a soul winner. Then I could reach people. Then I could do something for God. But when Philip is speaking of insufficiency here, he's not saying that a minuscule amount is insufficient. He's saying that an enormous amount is insufficient. Now you say, where do we get the encouraging part? This is where we get encouraged. Because how much God can use us doesn't matter whether we have no talents or many talents. How much God can use us is not dependent on whether we have a little bit of money or a lot of money. Whether we have a little bit of boldness or a lot of boldness. Whether we have a little bit of personality or a lot of personality. That's completely irrelevant to the discussion. We see in this passage the insufficiency. We see these limitations. But notice the lad, verse number 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, and by the way, it's interesting to look at Andrew's role in this. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five I want to talk for a minute about this lad. Now, we don't know the boy's name, and we don't have to know it. We do not know his hometown, and we do not have to know it. We do not know what his heritage was, and we do not have to know it. We don't know if he came from a good home or a bad home. We don't know whether he came from a home with money or whether he came from a home that didn't have money. We don't know whether this young man uh, was uh, 8 or 10 or 11 or 12, or however old he might have been. We, we trust, because it says lad, that he would have been younger uh, than 13, but we do not know his exact age. We do not know whether this was a child with a great bubbly personality, or whether this was an introverted child. We know nothing about him except for what he did on this day. And can I say to you, listen, I'm thankful that God values who we are. Aren't you thankful for that? I mean, I'm thankful even though we've got a world that doesn't value us, that God does. But can I tell you something? What's going to matter is none of those things 
It's not going to matter what kind of home you grew up in. It's not going to matter how much money you've got. It's not going to matter how popular you were. On and on we could go. You know what's going to matter when we get to heaven? What we've done with Jesus Christ. That's what's going to make the difference. It's funny to me, you know, I'll tell you one of the most educational things you can ever do is walk through a graveyard. I didn't say it was one of the most fun, but it is one of the most educational. Walk through and read tombstones. You'll find out what people value in life. Because sometimes you'll walk through and you'll read a tombstone about a man's uh, great accolades in life. He was a businessman or he was an... You can do this... Listen, if, if, if graveyard's weird, yet, just pick up the obituaries and you can find out the exact same thing. Because as you read through the obituaries, you'll hear a man's accomplishments, what he's done, what he, uh, where he held maybe a local office, civil office, uh, whether he served in the army or uh, the military of some type, whether he was a part of this group or a part of that group. And we try to sum up everything about a man in that short paragraph in which we're sort of eulogizing him and summing up his life. But every once in a while, and I always kind of like this, I always like reading an obituary that says something to this effect. So-and-so of such-and-such age passed away and went into the arms of their Lord and Savior. Or, or says something, it might say where they were a member of a church, and that's great, but it says something about going home to meet their Lord. Meeting their Savior is at rest now in the arms of Christ. You know why I like that? Because it tells me what they valued in life. And you know that's really what's going to matter. We ought to value the things that God values. That's the only way we're ever going to lay up heavenly riches or heavenly treasures is by valuing what God values. So we see with this young man, we don't know anything about him, but I want you to notice two things that we do know. First off, notice his sacrifice. Now, this was this boy's lunch. Again, we do not know much about the circumstances. There are some things that we can infer from this passage. One of them is this, uh, that this boy probably was not there with his parents. Now, you say, well, why do you infer that? Because if his parents had been there with them, then probably that entire uh, family's meal would have been brought and laid before Jesus' feet. Probably this young man was by himself, had gone out with the multitude to hear Jesus teaching out in the wilderness. Now you say, why is that significant? Because that tells me something. If this young boy didn't have anything to eat, there was no one to look after him. He was not just giving away a snack. He was giving away, in a sense, his very life. When he gave this to Jesus, he was giving everything that he had. And do you know what's interesting to me? The disciples did not know what was about to happen. And we have no reason to believe that the lad understood what was about to happen. So, man, this blessed me when I read this. When he gave it, he gave it for keeps. He didn't expect to get it back. He didn't expect Christ to take and break that and break it into enough to feed 5,000. In other words, there's no strings attached to his gift to the Lord. He just gave it and said, Lord, whatever you want to do with it, That's enough. You say, why would that little boy bring that gift? Well, there's a lot of different reasons I suppose we could could believe. But I'll tell you what I choose to see in this passage, and I do believe it's scriptural. The meal that he brought was enough to feed one person. You say, who do you reckon he was feeding? I think he was physically feeding the person that had spiritually fed him. I think when he brought that meal to the Lord, he intended it for the Lord. That little boy never had any intention of that going so far. 
But he said, this is what I have, and I've been blessed with it from God, so let me try to give it back to the Lord to be a blessing to Him. You know, that's how we all live our lives. It's a blessing when God uses us to touch other lives. And we're going to see in a moment how that that happened. But let me just pause to say, isn't it wonderful, even if no one cared, even if no one applauded, even if no one saw it, even if there was no evident fruit on this walk and in this life, wouldn't it be enough to give everything to Jesus who gave everything to us? That's the way we ought to look at it. A lot of our discouragement comes from not looking at service that way. When, when we do something for the Lord, we have to understand, if we're doing it for the Lord, it means something. A lot of times people get discouraged because what they say they're doing for the Lord, they're really not doing for the Lord. They're doing it for others, they're doing it for themselves. And then when things don't turn out right, they get discouraged, they get frustrated, they get hurt. But you know, if you're doing it for the Lord all along, then you're always going to be satisfied with the outcome. Do you know why that is? Because no matter how anyone else feels about it, the Lord sees it and appreciates it and rewards it. We see this young man sacrifice, but notice his surrender. Now you say, wait a minute, preacher, that's the same thing. I mean, just because you can come up with two S words that kind of sound similar, it don't mean you ought to preach. No, I want you to notice something. Look what it says. Read it again. Verse number 11. The Bible says, and Jesus took the loaves. Let's pause there. Jesus took the loaves. This young man did something that is highly significant. He took what he had, his livelihood, his very survival, and he let go of it and put it in the hands of the Savior. That's significant. You say, why is it significant? Because it symbolizes what you and I have to do every day. This young man probably, and I don't want, I don't want to overemphasize him and not draw our focus on the Savior, but I, but, but I believe that this young man, when he gave this away, there was every reason to believe that he wouldn't be able to make it back home as a result of it. So what was this young man doing? He was choosing to die. I'm reminded of the little widow woman that Elisha came across and the cruise of oil and the meal. And every day there was oil to be drawn out of it. But whenever, or Elijah, when Elijah came to that woman and said, first make me a little cake to eat. She said, I just got enough. I mean, listen, all I've got is enough to feed my child. We're going to eat it and die. That's how desperate this is. He said, okay, that's fine. But first make me the little cake. You know that for her to obey, she had to choose to die. She had to make her mind up that she is satisfied dying to live in obedience. Let me tell you something. You won't live in obedience until you're ready to die spiritually for the cause of Christ. When this young man gave this meal into the hands of the Savior, he was handing his life to him and he was saying, I choose to die so that you can live. The only way that Christ can live through us is as we die daily. That's what Paul said. Paul said, I die daily. It's a daily death that we must endeavor Upon, And that's what this young man was doing. He took the circumstance, took the situation, died to self, said, what happens to me does not matter. Lord, I'm putting it in your hands now for you to do with it as you please. We see his surrender. So we've seen the legion, the limitations in the lad. But notice what happens with the loaves in verse number 11. First thing that happens is a blessing. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks... And it's interesting, this is one of the few stories in the Gospels that spans all four Gospels. 
Very few details span all four Gospels. But do you know that this blessing is found in all four Gospels? That's significant. This is one of a, of a handful of times that the Bible records for us uh, Jesus giving thanks over something. Now, we have Him praying over and over and over again, but there's only, I believe, about three or four times when the Bible speaks of Jesus giving thanks over something. And that's significant because it tells me this. We ought to understand where these things have come from in our lives. You know, a lot of times the reason we have trouble giving our life to Christ and serving the Lord and witnessing and doing the things that God has asked of us is because we still believe our life belongs to us. What was the Savior saying? He looked towards His heavenly Father. He didn't look towards the lad. It's interesting that it never records Him giving thanks to the lad. You say, well, maybe that's what it's saying here. No, because if you read in the other gospel accounts, it says He blessed the bread. In other words, he prayed to his heavenly Father and thanked the Lord. He didn't look at the lad and thank him. He looked towards heaven and thanked him. You say, I ain't got no thanks for what I've done. Well, that's because it's the Lord that's done it through you. You say, well, nobody appreciates anything that I do. And you say, some of you are saying, nobody feels like that preacher. Oh, some people do. And I've felt like that before. And we all get to feel. And you say, I've never felt like that. Well, just wait a little while. You serve the Lord. You'll get to feeling that way at some point. And you say, well, preacher, you know, how could anyone think that way? Well, when you think that way and when you feel that way, just remember this, that it's the Lord that's given you the ability to serve Him anyway. Even if nobody thanks you, you ought to look towards heaven and thank Him. We see the blessing, but we see the breaking. He took and He began to break it. began to break it. Listen, time wouldn't permit me to talk about all the things I love to talk about with the breaking of this bread. But suffice it to say this, Only in the broken bread could the 5,000 be fed. You ever feel like God's breaking you? And by the way, it wasn't one breaking, but it was a repetitive, a perpetual breaking. Just broken and broken and broken and broken. But every time it was broken, we see that there was a little more there. And you know, every time that God breaks us in our life, we find there's a little more there. There's a little more there. You say, well, I'm not benefiting from it. No, but there's a hungry mouth somewhere. There's a hungry soul somewhere that's watching your trials and is saying to themselves, if they can trust God, I can trust God. If they can get through it, I can get through it. If God will help them, then God will help me. And you say, well, I don't ever see that. Isn't it interesting? This lad probably didn't get around to see everyone that got fooled that day. And probably not all those 5,000 people got to see that lad that day. He was blessing people he never would see. And, and those people were getting blessed by someone that they never even saw. Sometimes in our life, there's people that are getting help out of our life that we're not even aware of. We wonder why God's breaking us and breaking us and breaking us. Trial and discouragement and frustration and difficulty and sorrow and suffering, but it's only through the breaking that God can multiply us. Then we see the bestowing. Isn't it interesting what our Lord does? Our Lord does not go around, and I understand the logistical reason for this. would have taken a long time, but I believe it's significant uh, that our Lord says there in verse uh, number 11 that uh, He distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. This was a networking thing. I don't like that word networking because it seems cheap. But do you know that really Christianity is a networking thing? Now, not networking in the sense of trying to make friends here and there and everywhere, but what I mean is it is a network. The person that uh, 
that preach the gospel to me, under which I came to the understanding that I need to be saved, or however you'd like to describe it. Uh, that person was not the first person to ever be saved. See, someone distributed it to them. They distributed it to me. And then, by God's grace, I want to distribute it to other people. And my hope and desire, if the Lord tarries, is that they distribute it to people beyond them. That's what this life is. That's what the service of God is. is taking what God's given you and giving you through other people and taking it and sharing it with other people. You know, that's why it's a problem when we don't witness and don't testify and don't give people the gospel and don't try to win people. You say, why? Because we are defeating the purpose and plan of God. God's desire is that it be spread throughout. Not that we take it and hoard it to ourselves. You could imagine what this world would do if they found out that there was a cure for cancer. You could imagine the selfishness that, and the anger that we would uh, feel towards a person or the selfishness we would see in them if we found out that there was some scientist somewhere that had discovered a cure and had never shared it. But friend, I'm here to tell you that the sickness that each and every man, woman, and child is born with in this world does a lot more destruction than cancer ever will. And there is a cure, and you and I have it. The question is, will we bestow it? And finally, and I, I kind of like this. The Lord allowed me to put this in my outline, but it kind of got me tickled. We, we see the legion of people. We see the limitations of the situation. We see the lad and his sacrifice. We see the loaves being broken. But what are the leftovers? <laughs> what are the leftovers? Look what it says in verse number 12 and 13. It says, when they were filled... He said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. We see the saving of these leftovers. Now you say, Preacher, what, what could that possibly mean in my life? Well, let me put it this way. If we see this loaf of bread or these five loaves and these two fishes as being symbolic of this young man's life, then it tells me this, there wasn't a single part of him that was broken, but what God honored and kept it. There wasn't a single sacrifice made, but what God saw it and honored it and kept it. And you know what it tells me too? Do you realize that our service for God does not end when we leave this world? You, you've heard people say sometimes, and I've heard this said before, uh, about those that rest in the Lord. The book of Revelation speaks about those that rest in the Lord. And I've heard some preachers say at funerals, well, they've entered into their reward. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they've entered into their rest. You say, well, why does it matter? Well, the reason it matters is because this. The Bible speaks of those that have died in the Lord and says that their works do follow them. What we do for Christ does not end the moment that we leave this world. Now, the things we can choose to do and do new, uh, those things do end. But the effect and the result of what we've done for Christ continue on long after. I've told this story before, but I'll share it with you again. It's said of old uh, Mr. Mueller, George Mueller, one of the greatest prayer warriors ever to live. In fact, his whole fame is, is really the fact that he was such a prayer warrior. Not that he was a phenomenal preacher or anything, but he owned orphanages in Bristol, England. And Mr. Mueller had been praying for some loved ones of his. One was a friend and one was a loved one. And uh, he had been praying for them. And he had prayed for 35 years for these men. And Mr. Mueller died and those people hadn't got saved. And at the funeral... It said that one of these men, the loved one, was one of the pallbearers for Mr. Mueller. And as they were carrying the casket to the grave, 
that man stopped and he said, stop, stop, put the casket down. They all looked at him like, well, why? What's the matter? He said, I've got to get saved. And he knelt down on that casket and asked Christ into his heart. A few months after that, the friend of Mr. Mueller's came to know the Lord. And you say, well, what in the world does that mean? What is that, preacher? That's the Lord gathering up fragments that they not be lost. That, that's, that's the Lord making sure that those prayers were not in vain. That's the Lord making sure that those tears are not in vain. And you say, preacher, sometimes it just seems so, so futile and so vain and pointless serving God. Seems like no one sees and no one appreciates. And I'm here to tell you that God does not break you so He can waste you. He saves every single fragment. We see the saving. And then I'll end with this. We see the sending. I wonder where those baskets went. Never says there's twelve baskets full. And uh, you say, well, well, where did those go? Well, I, and I could be wrong. And listen, if I get to heaven, the Lord tells me I'm wrong. I won't, I won't spit over it. You know, I mean, but, but I just, you know, in society, it's typical uh, that whoever orders the food gets to take home the leftovers. And I can just see those big fishermen, those disciples, those ones that God had changed and saved and called walking down the road with this little boy, Amen. smiling ear to ear as he carried home 12 baskets of leftovers. You say, well, what is that, preacher? Well, I see this. I see that that boy's investment paid monumental dividends. I see that that boy walked away with more than what he came with. I see that he took what little he had that was insignificant, put it in the hands of God, and God used it and multiplied it and made it something significant. You say, well, here, where's the encouragement that you was talking about? Or here's the encouragement. You say, I don't have much. Well, it doesn't matter whether you have a little or whether you have a lot. You can't do anything with it. But you'll find if you take that little bit that you've got, you say, well, what do you mean that little bit? That little bit of money, that little bit of talent, that little bit of boldness, that little bit of courage, that little bit of strength, whatever it is that you can give to the Lord, whatever it is, that little bit of your life, that is the entirety of it. And put it in the hands of the Savior. You'll find there'll come a day when it'll pay dividends. It'll do more than you could have ever done with it. You see, every, if you had all the riches, all the resources in the world, if you had 200 penny worth, it wouldn't be enough to do the job. But even that five loaves and those two fishes is enough when you put it in the hands of God.